have babies that we treat in neonatal units who are born at 23 weeks and we do everything we can to try to keep them alive and to support them and, and we treat them that way. And then at the same time, if you have a 23-week baby in the womb in this country, you can have an abortion for any reason at all, even if it's just because the baby's a girl. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, Callum Miller, medical doctor and philosopher. Callum is a leading pro-life voice and researcher in global abortion policy. In a country that has good healthcare and that does not allow abortion, the other side will say all these women will die because, you know, abortion's not legal. The reality is they don't. He shares evidence of women who chose to keep their baby in difficult situations. Listen to the women who have been in that situation and allow them to have their voices because that's all I'm sharing. And when we do listen to them, we actually find that their stories still point towards life as the solution, even in those really difficult circumstances. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Dr. Calamella, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me here. So you're a medical doctor and you also teach philosophy at University of Oxford. Could you just briefly talk to us about your journey and how you got to be speaking out about abortion? Sure, yeah. So I, I grew up in Croydon. Um, so as with most British people, I was pro-choice. I went to medical school. I thought abortion was fine, didn't have any problem with it, other than, you know, really late abortion, which most people begin to get uneasy about. And it was really in medical school that I had the chance to challenge my views. Um, sadly, still, most people, I think, don't. <laughs> but I really kind of got into it as a topic, heard a couple of talks on it, had some lectures on it. I did a lot of reading, had discussions, listened to other opinions, which I think is a good thing. And really, over a gradual period, changed my mind on it. Um, you know, when I saw in first year the development of the baby in the womb, and then later on, I got to think about the ethics. I got to see the impact of abortion on women. And I really just found myself thinking I was not persuaded by what the culture teaches us. And so changed my mind, basically on the basis of that evidence. Um, there was one particular point in medical school where I, we were doing a cesarean section on twin babies uh, on the woman. And it was just fascinating to think, you know, it's a very surreal experience. You pull babies out of the tummy. Literally, it seems like it should be more complicated. <laughs> and there is obviously a bit more to it, but you really do just pull the babies out. And at one point, of course, there was one baby outside the womb. And this was a human being, a person that had all the same rights as everyone else. Totally equal, because all of us are equal. And then their sister was still inside the womb who was looked pretty much identical to them in every way, was the same age, had the same abilities, everything else. But she was still inside and had nowhere near the same legal rights or recognition. And that just sort of solidified to me how uncomfortable I was with this idea that birth makes all the difference, that the same thing inside the womb can be a blob of cells, the same thing outside the womb is a person that we have to really look after. You know, we have babies that we treat in neonatal units who are born at 23 weeks and we do everything we can to try to keep them alive and to support them and, and we treat them that way. And then at the same time, if you have a 23-week baby in the womb in this country, you can have an abortion for any reason at all, even if it's just because the baby's a girl. And so over time, I just found myself more and more 
unpersuaded by what I'd been taught growing up and the sort of propaganda I'd heard. And so changed my mind, which I didn't expect to do. I didn't expect to be speaking about it either <laughs> very often. But I found, you know, we have 200,000 abortions a year in this country. A quarter of all pregnancies end in abortion. And one in three women in their lifetime in the UK will have an abortion. So it's a huge problem, not just affecting all those babies, but affecting hundreds of thousands of women as well. And so I really found that I had a, a pressure weighing on me to speak about this, to say we can support babies and women together. We can say that both of those lives are important and try to find a better answer for these sorts of situations for women and for men and for babies and see if we can do something better. You talked to us briefly about what actually happens during an abortion. Yeah, so there are two main kinds of abortion these days. There have been other sort of ways of doing it in the past, but the two main sorts now are surgical abortion, which means that it's done using, you know, surgical techniques. At an early stage of pregnancy, that would be done by a vacuum. So the force of the vacuum basically destroys the baby. At a late stage of pregnancy, the baby is too... Um, big and strong and tough to be able to be vacuumed out and so you have to use forceps basically to pull off the pieces so you pull off the limbs if the head is too big then you crush the skull and remove the baby and this is done after about 14 15 weeks so it's not the majority of abortions but it is about five percent of abortions are done using this method and so that's about 10,000 each year in this country um, Later in pregnancy, we don't know to what extent this occurs in the UK, but you can do partial birth abortions where you deliver the baby and halfway through delivery, you again put forceps and then a catheter into the baby's skull, suck the brains out and then that kills the baby and then you deliver the rest of the baby. So again, this is, this is going to be a very small proportion. We don't know how much it happens in the UK, but it does seem to be legal in the UK. That was sort of the traditional methods, the surgical side. More recently, over the last 10 to 20 years, there's what's called medical abortion. Some people call it chemical abortion, which basically means you use pills or drugs to um, end the baby's life and then induce a miscarriage. So you take the first pill, which breaks down the lining of the uterus, disconnects the baby, which means that it's deprived of oxygen and nutrients and everything that it needs to survive. And then the second pill basically causes contractions. And so, again, the force of the contractions will help to end the baby's life if it's not dead already. And then it will expel the baby by, yeah, helping it to eject from the uterus. So those are the main ways. The, the large majority in the UK now are done by medical abortion. Um, only maybe, I think, about 10%, 10 to 20% are done by surgical abortion. If it's very late in pregnancy, after about 20 weeks, before you would do a medical abortion, you would do a procedure called feticide. So what that means is that you can guess from the name, it's about ending the life of the fetus. That's done by injecting a needle through the woman's tummy into the heart of the baby, and then you inject potassium chloride into the baby's heart, which should end the life of the baby. And then you would do induced labor to remove the baby. Now, potassium chloride is used in, in low concentrations in medicine all the time. There's nothing un, you know, remarkable about it. But in terms of the high concentrations that you need to end the life of the baby, this has basically been rejected by vets. You won't find a vet using this in live conscious animals because it's deemed inhumane because it's so painful. When you look at human rights groups campaigning against the death penalty, they say that it is torture to give any 
prisoner on death row this chemical in this concentration just because it is so excruciatingly painful. Um, but unfortunately, that's one of the main drugs that they use for feticide in the UK when it comes to abortions after about 20 weeks. So I know none of that is very pleasant to hear, and I don't like to be the messenger, but that is pretty much the straightforward medical kind of physical reality of what the different kinds of abortion involve and what it would often involve in this country. In your opinion, is uh, abortion permissible under any circumstances? When we think about abortion in general and particularly extreme circumstances, there are a few things we have to bear in mind. Firstly, that when it comes to legal abortion, the large majority of abortions are not for extreme situations. They're for social reasons, economic reasons, etc. So in the UK, 98% of abortions are done for so-called mental health reasons. Now, mental health isn't trivial, of course. Mental health is important to take care of. But the reality is that abortion doesn't actually solve any mental health problems and that the law is exploited. So in this country, if you go to the doctor and you say, I want a baby boy, having a baby girl would affect my mental health, you can have an abortion for mental health reasons because it would count as mental health because you don't want a girl. So it's very liberally interpreted and 98% of abortions are for mental health. Only 2% are for disability um, because the woman's life is at risk, etc. Now, there's a lot to say about that, and maybe we can discuss that later. With that in mind, I think the, f the key thing to think about is the idea of human equality. So the pro-life perspective is not about saying that one person is more important than another. It's not about prioritizing the baby. It's about saying that every human being is equal, whether they're big or small, male or female, whatever race or ethnicity they are, whether they're dependent or independent, no matter their location, etc., And so it says we have to follow medical science, which shows that the life begins at fertilization. That's just basic biology. And if so, then we have to protect every human being the same. Now, that means that when we think about taking the life of another human being, we can do this, but only in extreme situations. So I could never walk down the street and end somebody's life because they were poor or because they were causing me distress or because they might be conceived in the wrong circumstances or because they're disabled. We say that every human being has the same basic right to life. And the only time you can end that life is in something like self-defense. If they're threatening your life, then it's permissible not joyfully or happily, but reluctantly and as a last resort to end their life as a means of self-defense. And so if we really believe in human equality, we have to say the same about the child in the womb, which is still a human being, according to science. And therefore, we have to say that, yes, if the woman's life is at risk, which happens in maybe 0.1% of abortions, or actually less than that, then legally it's permissible, it's legal in every country around the world legally, and ethically, we can justify doing that. Again, we don't want to do it. We do it as a last resort. But if the woman's life is at risk, then she can do that. But we would never be able to do it because, you know, we can't kill a five-year-old child or an adult because they're causing someone distress. They were conceived in the wrong circumstances, etc. And again, the fundamental point is if we really believe in human equality, 
we have to apply the same principles to every human being, including those in the womb. And so we would say that we could end the life only when we could end any other human being's life, which is basically in self-defense. The one common justification for providing abortion services is if we didn't, women would go and find a, a, a backstreet illegal uh, person to do that for them, and the health outcomes would be worse. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, so for many years, this was one of the most challenging questions to come up against because everyone finds it a tragedy when a woman dies. You know, if it's because she's gone and got an unsafe abortion, it's a tragedy because she's died. She might leave behind children, a family who, who loved her and so on. So this is a serious question. And as you say, it's, it's quite powerful and a common argument, I think, because you can sort of ignore the moral question about abortion. You can say, well, maybe it doesn't matter if abortion is right or wrong. As a practical matter, we have to legalize it because then we can at least save these women. Now, as a result, because I found it so challenging, I made it my main research topic for the last few years. And so I've published quite a bit on this question. And what we basically find is that, firstly, we would never sort of allow other human rights violations or things like that because it was too unsafe to do them. So, you know, we don't legalize theft because burglars get in trouble or get into dangerous situations by breaking into people's houses and so on. Um, so there's a moral question, and, and this has been used to justify all sorts of other things in the past. I mean, even the slave trade, they would say, let's keep it legal so that it can be regulated and done safely to protect the slaves and protect, protect the traffickers. And of course, no one finds that credible. But it is an instinctively powerful argument when it comes to abortion because these women are genuinely dying in some cases. And so I looked into this and I was somewhat surprised at what I found, which is that, that actually there's not really any good evidence that legalizing abortion makes that problem better. So what you tend to find is that in a country that has good health care and that does not allow abortion, the other side will say all these women will die because, you know, abortion's not legal. The reality is they don't. In Malta, they haven't had a maternal death in 10 years. In Poland, they have the lowest maternal mortality ratio in the whole world. Both of these countries do not allow 98% of abortions. Malta doesn't allow any except if the woman's life is at risk. And these two countries have the best maternal mortality in the world. They don't have any woman dying from backstreet or unsafe abortions. Whereas by contrast, if you go to a country with much less in terms of healthcare resources, but has legal abortion, supposedly it should be okay because these women can have safe legal abortions and they won't die. But that's just not the case. If you go to India, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Ghana, South Africa, etc., tons of countries all over the world with legal, supposedly safe abortion, they still have many deaths from women getting unsafe abortions. In fact, in some cases, it makes the problem worse. So we've seen in countries like the Netherlands, Rwanda, Ethiopia, South Africa, and many others, more women die from unsafe abortion after it's legalized. Now that might seem unintuitive, but it is the empirical reality that just because abortion is legal doesn't mean everyone wants to go to an official place and get one. They might say, I have more privacy getting one myself, or it's easier, or it's cheaper, or whatever. And so empirically, there is actually no basis to this argument. So 
I did, a, you know, I did a particular study on this in the UK. I looked at what happened in 1967 and the following years when abortion was legalized. And it basically didn't have much of an impact at all. In fact, in 1968, the first year that the Abortion Act was operative, there was a spike in women dying from abortions. And so wherever you go in the world, but including in the UK, we find that this argument actually isn't backed up by the empirical evidence. Uh, on the, the flip side of this, uh, the, we talked about the 2% of uh, abortions that aren't for the kind of uh, mental health reasons, etc. If a, a woman uh, goes through with having a baby that, that may be disabled, or also if a woman has been a victim of rape, that's obviously a, a tragic thing, but she goes through with having the baby as well. Do you know of any kind of evidence of, of people who've done that and, and how they feel about doing that? Absolutely. And I think this is one of the most important things that we listen to those people. You know, we often make assumptions about what people should do in this situation or what they find helpful. And it's very rare that anyone actually stops to ask women in these situations, how do you feel? What do you want? What do you think would help? Or in retrospect, what did help or what made things worse? And so we have a lot of evidence about particularly women who have disabled babies and how they feel about it. Now, in this country, you can have an abortion up to birth or even during birth if the baby's disabled. And that can be any disability. So if the baby has a cleft lip, you can have an abortion up to birth. That's easily fixable, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been fixable for centuries. I guess one of the most, one of the earliest surgical procedures, I think. Um, 90%, I think the number's gone down slightly, but it was the case a few years ago that 90% of babies with Down syndrome in this country are aborted. So there's a real pressure. And if you look at the studies and ask these women, they will say, you know, we were offered abortions and even pressured to have abortions by the doctors. Um, I have a friend in the US who was told that her baby had a very serious disability, that they were going to die a couple of months ago. Turns out, and they were hugely pressured to have an abortion. And then it turned out the test was wrong, the baby's absolutely fine, and I mean, they're going to get a lot of money from suing, <laughs> I think. Um, but, you know, we know of cases where they've, the family have taken this advice. In Ireland, within a year of legalizing abortion, they were told the exact same situation. This baby has this very serious condition, they had the abortion, and when the baby came out, they realized it was perfectly healthy mm -hmm. and, you know, you can only imagine what that would do to the parents. So, so of course, you know, we have to, to look at what people say in this situation. Now, there are some disabilities like Down syndrome, which don't, you know, where there's a good life expectancy. And if you ask anyone who has someone with Down syndrome in their family, they will say they're the happiest person in the family. Their life is so obviously worth living. We love having them around. They enrich us and they make our lives more meaningful. That's just the basic experience of anyone who has someone with Down syndrome in their family or in their community. And so I don't know if I need to <laughs> convince much about that, but it gets maybe a bit more challenging when you have these situations where the baby has a, you know, a life-threatening disability that means that they will pass away within a few hours or days, or sometimes you know, people are surprised to learn that they can actually live for a few years in some cases. And again, we have good evidence there was a study a few years ago which looked at women who specifically had babies with a life-limiting condition. They had hours or days to live. And it asked them, how did you feel about having the baby? Would you do the same thing again? And they found that 98% said I would do the same thing again. That if I 
had the same child that I knew was going to die after birth, I would have the baby again because those few hours with my baby were some of the most meaningful and important moments of my life, even though it was just a few hours. And so again, all we need to do is listen to people in this situation. And they overwhelmingly say it was the right decision. Um, they even have studies comparing women who have abortions in that situation. And they find that the women who keep the babies had much better mental health outcomes afterwards. Now, the same is basically true with what I think is, is an even more sort of challenging and maybe counterintuitive situation of sexual violence, where, of course, no woman should ever be in this position in the first place. And we have to try and find ways of holding people accountable who are the perpetrators of these horrendous crimes. But the question is, will abortion actually help undo that trauma? Um, even if a woman doesn't get pregnant in that situation, she will still have the trauma and suffering because she's been abused in one of the most horrendous ways that anyone could ever suffer. And so it's clear that the fundamental problem is not the pregnancy. The fundamental problem is the violence and abuse that she has experienced. And that will not be solved by abortion. And so there's a lot more to say about that, but there has been a really good study of about 200 women who became pregnant after being the victim of sexual violence. It found that the majority kept the baby, which was surprising itself. Of the women who had abortions, many said that they regretted it. Not everyone, but many said it was the wrong decision. It only added a second trauma to the victim and a second victim to the crime. They said it didn't help. It didn't undo the trauma that I went through. Whereas with the women who had the baby, I'm not saying it's easy, it was hugely difficult, courageous and brave for them to do so. But when they actually spoke and were allowed to have their voices heard afterwards, every single woman in that study who had the baby said, I'm glad. They didn't say, oh, I saw their face every day and I remembered the trauma and it sent me back and you know traumatized me every day. That's not what they said at all. Every single woman said, I'm glad that I had the baby. I would do the same thing again and it helped me to heal. It was the only thing that gave me hope in all of that darkness. It was the light at the end of the tunnel, and it was the only thing that helped me to get through my trauma and give meaning to the suffering that I was experiencing. So again, I'm not saying that's easy, and if someone doesn't believe me saying that because I've never been through it, I completely get that. But what I would say is listen to the women who have been in that situation and allow them to have their voices because that's all I'm sharing. And when we do listen to them, we actually find that their stories still point towards life as the solution, even in those really difficult circumstances. What would you say to uh, uh, many women who may respond to your views with the phrase, my body, my choice? Um, I think it, it kind of depends on the person. <laughs> um, people ask that for, say that for many different reasons. They say it with many different backgrounds and histories. So some people have a very serious and important concern for their own bodies because they have been controlled in the past. You know, when you read the statistics in this country about how many women have been physically abused or controlled or the victims of sexual abuse or violence, it's horrendous to think about. And I completely understand the sentiment that my body's been violated in the past. My, you know, my body should never be controlled in that sort of way. And I think that's a valid concern. And those women should never have been controlled in those ways or, or coerced or abused or, or attacked. 
when it comes to abortion, I think we're talking about something slightly different. We can all agree that we have many choices about our body. No one should be forced to have sex against their choice, to become pregnant against their choice, to do all sorts of things against their choice. But on the other hand, there are many situations where we do limit people's choices. Everyone agrees with this. I mean, I don't have the choice to use my body to go down the road and attack someone else or to end someone else's life. Many people who are pro-choice on the issue of abortion are anti-choice when it comes to wearing masks or leaving your house in a pandemic or taking a vaccine. So the reality is it's much more complicated. No one believes that every choice can happen. No one believes that no choices can happen. We all say, yes, if you can make choices that don't harm other people, don't affect other people, or you know, affect them within reasonable limits, then you should have that choice. But everyone agrees that if your choices really impact on another human being by, or take away one of the most fundamental rights that they have, then that choice can be limited. And so the question is, where does abortion fall in that? What is abortion? We're not just talking about choice, we're talking about a specific choice, which is ending the life of this child. And when we put it that way and we actually talk about what the choice is, I think it becomes clear that this is more like those choices which impact other people and which take away their fundamental rights, the right to life. And so, you know, we saw it with COVID. I remember being on a doctor's forum on a debate about mandatory vaccines. And someone said, I don't think it should be allowed. I've got human rights to my own body. And all of these pro-choice doctors piled on saying, how dare you say that your choice is more important than someone else's right to live? And it was fascinating. You could have been reading like a pro-life <laughs> kind of in, in abortion debate, but it was about the vaccines and it was pro-choice people. And so I think all of us have this recognition that if there is someone else's life at stake, and particularly if the choice is you actively ending that life, that is the kind of thing where choice is much more complicated. Another story I tell is um, the, the children who have survived abortions. There's a, a young man called Nick Hoot who was uh, originally born in Siberia, but then moved to the US to be adopted. And you can find videos of him online, Nick Hoot. He has two missing feet. Half of his right leg is missing. Part of his hand is missing. And the reason for that is because his parents tried to abort him. The abortion failed and he was born, which we know does happen from time to time. And then he, he was adopted by an American family. Now, he's very happy with his life. He doesn't complain about being an unwanted child who's abused. He's so grateful that he has the chance to live, even though they tried to abort him, and even though he ended up having a disability as a result. And what he says is, what about my body? You can see my body. I'm missing my feet. I'm missing my hands. My body is completely different, and I had no choice about it. So what about my body, my choice? Because this is the reality of abortion. And so fundamentally, the issue is that this isn't just one body and one choice. This is two bodies, and both of them have to be protected, and both of them have choices to make in the future. And so we can't just assume that there is nothing, you know, that the baby is not a baby and that it has no choice in the matter, because there are people like Nick who their bodies are forever changed and mutilated because of abortion. 
And so fundamentally, this is not just one body, this is two bodies. And therefore, we have to take both of those into account when we talk about my body, my choice. Do you think the availability of abortion has had effects on the family unit and also on, on men and their attitude to fatherhood? Absolutely. Um, and I think this is one of the most clear ways in which excluding men from the conversation is harmful to everyone. No one wins when men are taken out of the conversation. And the reason for that is men are part of the problem and therefore men have to be part of the solution. Now, I'm not making a generalization. Every pregnancy is different. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they're equally responsible. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they have an equal say in the abortion. Sometimes they don't, etc. So I'm not making any generalizations. But I am saying that men cause pregnancy and men cause abortions in many cases. And by taking them out of the picture, you actually disempower everyone and you get rid of half of the solution. And so what they've actually shown is that when abortion is legalized, in theory, the woman is supposed to say, great, I can have sex you know, whenever I want with whoever I want, and there are fewer consequences because I can have an abortion. So she has more sex, the men do the same, and we know that therefore there are more pregnancies, more sexually transmitted diseases, etc. But what actually happens there is that the woman becomes pregnant. In fact, there are more pregnancies because there's more sex when abortion is legalized. And the woman has to have some consequences because it's her body that has the pregnancy. So she has to either go through a traumatic abortion, which many women don't want to do or do only reluctantly, or she has to have the baby and raise the child. The man can say, well, it's your body, it's your choice, and therefore it's your problem, and I'm having nothing to do with it. So he packs up his bags and walks away. And so he's completely free. He goes on to you know, earn however much he wants, socialize however much he wants. He can enjoy all the benefits of sex with no responsibility. But the woman isn't in that position. She's the one who has to deal with the consequences and pick up the pieces. And so rather than liberating women from the consequences of sex, it's actually liberated men completely and left women with more consequences, only this time instead of having the man there to deal with responsibility as well, she is left alone. So it's actually made the problem worse. And so the woman says, parenthood is optional for me. But the man says, well, in that case, parenthood is optional for me. And I'm having nothing to do with it. It's you that has to deal with this. And so this is seen in the empirical evidence. We've seen that single motherhood has massively increased since abortion rather than decreasing. And that has caused huge poverty rates among women, among children in particular. So abortion was supposed to liberate women financially and help them be more independent and more sustainable financially. In fact, the opposite has happened. They've become more dependent. They've had more financial problems because they have been left to pick up the pieces of pregnancy. So this causes huge problems. You know, it causes all the problems of poverty and inequality. It's a huge social justice issue, if you want to think about it that way. But we also know that the family breakdown caused by this causes increased mental health problems for the mother and the father and for the child. The father and the child are both more likely to be involved in crime and particularly violent crime going forward. And you know, all of us who have read any of the evidence on this know just how many problems family breakdown causes throughout society. And so 
the legalization of abortion has been a really key factor in that and has really been dr the driving force behind that. The underlying question to all of this is obviously, when does life begin? Mm -hmm. uh, you're a, a medical doctor and you also teach philosophy. Is what you would learn in medical school the same as what you would teach in your ethics class? Yeah, so I, I made what might have sounded like a bold claim earlier on when we were talking about abortion generally, which was that a, a life begins at fertilization. Um, now, many people say, well, we don't know when life begins, or it's a personal opinion, or it might be a religious question. The reality is that this is a scientific question. Biology literally means the study of life. And when you think about it, this makes sense. I mean, <laughs> when you look at the development in the womb, it's biology that we're looking at. When you look at human organisms, when you look at species, what makes something a human being as opposed to a dolphin or a whale, we ask biologists because we're biological creatures. And so this was just what I learned in medical school, that the human organism begins at fertilization when the sperm meets the egg. And therefore, that's when you have the entire genetic complement. You have the entire, all the genes necessary for that human to go on and develop. And the only thing it needs beyond that point is just the right environment, the right nutrients, and then the time. And they will mature into an adult eventually. The same as any other child. You give them the right environment, the right nutrients, and the time, and they will grow into an adult. So the same is true of the embryo once it's created. The same is not true of a sperm. You give nutrients to a sperm in the right environment, it doesn't necessarily do anything. <laughs> um, it's only once it meets the egg that it has that potential to, to go into a, a human being. So just to prove this, there was a researcher in America a few years ago who asked the public, who is the expert on when life begins? And 80% said biologists. And so he then asked biologists, he went to 5,000 and he asked them, when does an individual human organism begin? A member of our species, Homo sapiens. And he found that 95% said a life begins at fertilization. So there's almost no controversy about this at all, 95%. He then even asked, are you pro-choice or not? And he found that even among the very pro-choice biologists, the most extreme, hardcore pro-choice ones, even 70% of those said that at fertilization, a new human organism begins. Mm -hmm. And so really, this is not a question that is debated within science. It's a question that is uh, pretty clear when it comes to the science, that a life begins at fertilization. The question is just, when does that life begin to matter? When do we give it rights? And as I said, if you really believe in human equality, that every human is equal, then you have to say that those human rights come as soon as the human is there, which is at fertilization. Do you think these terms pro-life, pro-choice are, are quite the right terms to use? I always wonder if someone is against abortion but support the death penalty, are they pro-life? And, and pro-choice sounds so um, enthusiastic. I don't think it quite captures the gravity of what the choice is. Yeah, I think it's, it's a sort of compromise that both sides have reached <laughs> because both of them sound quite positive. They get across kind of the gist of the position. And so I don't think they're good terms, but they are a sort of compromise that we can use for the sake of conversation. But I, you know, I think there are big problems with it. Now, you see this when it comes to the BBC reporting on it, for example. They will talk about like anti-choice or, pro, or, uh, or, you know, instead of pro-life. Right. Or they will talk about um, 
they will refuse to call pro-life people pro-life, but they won't call the other side anti-life. <laughs> so it's just a very strange sort of setup where, that they've got, and obviously that's deliberate. Um, the, the biggest problem I have, with, if I have is with the pro-choice terminology. Um, I mean, when you look at the actions of the pro so-called pro-choice sort of lobby, in terms of what they do, what they campaign for, what they push for, they say that I should have no choice about whether my taxes go towards abortion. I should have no choice where my money goes in terms of supporting abortion. They say that I should have less choice as a doctor about whether I should perform abortions or refer people for abortions. They say that I should have no choice to reverse an abortion. So you can now give progesterone after the first abortion pill and that will increase the chance that the baby survives. They say that it should not be legal or permissible to do that and that women should not have the choice to reverse their abortion. They say that I should not have the choice to go to an abortion clinic and either protest or even hand out literature or offer support to women. They say I should not be able to pray silently in my head within 100 meters of an abortion clinic. <laughs> so to me, this doesn't sound like someone that is pro-choice. <laughs> Those are some of the most basic choices. Praying silently in my head, yeah. they think I shouldn't have the choice to do that. So ultimately, this is, you know, as I said earlier, this is not a debate about who supports choices. All of us support some choices. All of us reject some choices. The pro-choice side rejects all of those choices, which are perfectly, you know, <laughs> perfectly reasonable demands. I, I think I should be able to say, I want to pray silently in my head. I don't want to be forced to do abortions against my conscience. I don't want to pay for other people's abortions. Those are very reasonable things that I should have the choice about. They say that I shouldn't, but they say, of course you can have a choice about ending another human's life. So for me, I think this is just bad terminology and I really think it's not a helpful phrase to use. I was reading this uh, excellent investigation by Belinda Brown in The Conservative Woman about sex education in schools. She does talk briefly about abortion. She says it's, it's taught as normal and safer than pregnancy or giving birth. And she also says pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections are kind of referred to in the same sentence, like, oh, there's a risk of STI or pregnancy. What do you think the consequences will be if our children are, are taught in this way? Yeah, I think it's very sad. And, and on the other hand, I'm very encouraged and glad that more is being revealed about sex education in our schools. Um, I mean, all of us can agree that at the right age, kids should be taught how to be responsible about sex, that it has consequences, that you can never completely eliminate those consequences. And therefore, sex is something to be taken seriously and only to be done if you're prepared for those consequences. So all of us can agree with that. This isn't about whether you're pro or anti-sex ed or whatever. As long as it's age appropriate, it's factual, it's evidence-based, and it teaches about the importance of responsibility and consequences, we can all agree. Now, what strikes me is that there is such a fierce determination not to let parents see what is being taught. And to me, that is a huge red flag. <laughs> like if you hired a babysitter, and you ask them, what films are you going to show my kid? Or what are you going to read to my kid? And they refused to tell you. That would be a massive red flag. <laughs> like You would be so suspicious. 
And yet there is an absolute determination not to let parents see what is being taught in the schools. And for me, that is a huge safeguarding issue that is really horrendous to think. And of course, we've seen some of what is being taught in schools, and it is just as bad as you might suspect. Um, and so I think it's really important that parents keep fighting to, to understand what is being taught in their schools. But as you say, it has consequences. What kids are taught is going to have consequences. And it's much better for parents to teach their kids where they can, because parents are the ones who love their kids more than anyone else in the world. Your school teacher doesn't, your kid's teacher doesn't love your kid like you do. <laughs> um, they do not care anywhere near as much about whether your child grows up into a responsible person that flourishes in life, etc. Some teachers are great. Many teachers are great, and they do a great job, and they do care for your kid, but they care nothing like you do for your kid. You are the one who really cares if your child is going to flourish, and therefore you have the primary responsibility to teach your kid about all of these things and the consequences. So absolutely, these will have consequences in terms of the ideas taught. If you teach kids that pregnancy is the same kind of thing as a sexually transmitted disease, they will see pregnancy as a disease. And that's why you see women being pressured to have abortions or forced to have abortions, even in the health service. It's why women are not given the support they need when they want to form a family, because pregnancy is seen as a nuisance and it's seen as a burden rather than something that women should be rewarded for doing as a service to their country and as a service to society by, you know, literally providing the next generation and then providing them for, for the next 18 years. Motherhood and fatherhood are both two of the most essential things and ways that people serve society. And so much sacrifice and cost goes into it. And I think absolutely, if you're teaching kids that it's just a disease and a nuisance, then of course, all of those, you know, 90% of women out there who want to have a family and want to have a kid someday are not going to have the support that they need. The same with teaching that pregnancy is more dangerous. If you frighten, you know, kids are already scaremongered and frightened into all sorts of things these days. If you frighten them and say that pregnancy is super dangerous, even though, frankly, you know, it's much, much safer now than in the past, the mortality rate is absolutely tiny in the UK. But if you teach people that it's dangerous and that abortion is the safe option, again, women who, or girls, um, who grow up to be women are going to have pregnancies and they're going to think I'm too scared even though I want a baby and that it's safe to have an abortion and they'll be scarred from that for the rest of their lives and so I think it's horrendous to think what impact this could have on women as they grow up. Dr. Callum Miller thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you so much appreciate it.